It's good that you could join me. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to The Bible Teachers. I'm having a series of conversations with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, Is God for Real? This is the third program in the series. We've looked at the existence of God and the evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. In this program, we're addressing the question, Did we really evolve? Before we go to our topic today... I will introduce Peter Watts for those who may have missed the previous programs. Peter was born in the United Kingdom and hasn't always been a Christian. Peter's journey from unbelief to belief is fascinating, and he will tell us about that in the last program of the series. Hello, Peter. Welcome again. Thank you, Barry. It's good to be here. Peter, what are our options when it comes to understanding our origins? I suppose today, really, there are um, two major options, and that is either we evolved from non-living matter over a period of millions and nay billions of years, or we were specially designed, specially created by an intelligent being who knew what he was planning, um, knew what he was doing, and he created specific uh, kinds of life. Uh, And so creation or evolution, those are the two main theories. Sometimes uh, some will propose a third option, which is that maybe life was seeded here from some alien outer space, but that kind of just pushes the argument back a little bit, and it's still about, well, did that life evolve or was it created? So it's really between those two options. So is that um, third option... Uh, arising because people find this, the the evolutionary option a bit weak. I think, yeah, I think that uh, the challenge of explaining and demonstrating how living matter comes from non-living matter is uh, is, a, is a great challenge for science, and therefore some have proposed pushing the argument back into outer space and saying, well, life did come here. And therefore, life uh, didn't originate here, but it was seeded here. Uh, But then, of course, that only pushes the argument back further. And you have to come to uh, some kind of uh, decision about did we evolve or were we created? In the public domain, creation is usually portrayed as uh, religion and evolution as science. Why is that? Well, I think, um, obviously... Uh, If we're talking about the Bible, I mean, we've been talking in this series about uh, the Bible, the God of the Bible. Uh, Does God exist? Is he real? We're looking at evidence for that. And uh, I think people um, in the general public would say, well, that is religion because it's a religious book. And therefore, that's a religious belief, whereas science, that stuff that's done in laboratories, it's uh, what produces some of the amazing things that we see uh, that, that man has made. We recognise man's creative ability, um, and yet uh, I think in terms of uh, the science-religion uh, argument, um, it's not a valid one because there are so many scientists who are also religious. There are mm. people who believe in God who also practice science, and that's not just true today. Um, you look at uh, the fathers of modern science, and most of the fathers of modern science were um, Bible-believing Christians. You, you think of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Copernicus, Bacon, Galileo, Kepler. Uh, the list could go on. Pasteur, Lister, Faraday, Joule, Kelvin, F- um, Fleming. Many of the fathers of modern science were Bible-believing Christians. Mm. Well, are there scientists who accept 
creation today as an explanation of our origins. Yes, there are. And I also, uh, I suppose, when we talk about science, there is a no, or scientists, there is a notion, I think, uh, that I would have had uh, that, you know, all scientists agree. Uh, and really, you know, that's simply not the case. I guess um, just to insert at this point, I, I grew up believing in evolution. Uh, I grew up uh, in a secular home, went to a state school in, in the United Kingdom, and uh, I was taught evolution. I believed evolution. I thought that that was the way in which the universe came to be and the way in which life on earth came to be. I no longer believe that, um, not simply because of a religious point of view, but I actually believe the evidence is far more weighted upon the side of a uh, creative designer. Um, so there are plenty of scientists. I um, have a book um, edited by uh, Dr. John Ashton. It's called In Six Days, uh, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. And uh, the, I think the, the, the way this book came about, there was a student at a university, was in a university lecturer, and uh, the lecturer had said something along the lines of, no one with a PhD in the sciences would believe that God created. Um, and this student mentioned it to, to Dr. John Ashton. He said, well, I think I could probably find a few. And before very long, he'd found 80 scientists who were willing to write a paper on why from their field of science they believed that God created in six days. He took the best 50 of those essays, put them in a book, uh, and that was the book In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. And, uh, you know, these are from a wide variety of different scientific backgrounds, microbiology, chemistry, physics, zoology, mathematics, and so forth. Well, what's going on in this creation-evolution controversy if everyone has access to the same evidence but drawing sometimes totally different conclusions? Well, I think sometimes we... Um we kind of have this view um, that's developed over the last century that scientists are somehow impeachable, unimpeachable. Unimpe <laughs> that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, in, in other words, we, we have the kind of view that if a scientist in a white lab coat says something, then that must be true. We've, we've invested so much authority there um, that we don't recognise sometimes that scientists are real people they're human, they make mistakes, they sometimes have biases, they sometimes have agendas, they're sometimes willing to manipulate the evidence in order to favour a particular view. Um, every person listening to this broadcast probably has a view on whether they favour the view of creation or favour the view of evolution. Uh, and sometimes we will gravitate towards the evidence that seems to point in the direction that we would like it to. Um, and like I said... Not all scientists agree about um, all things. Um, I've got a quote here by H.S. Uh, Lipson, who is the professor of physics at New Manchester University. Uh, he said this, he said, In fact, evolution became, in a sense, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it, and many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. So here he observes that um, science is not... Um, uh, an area where there is no bias or there is no favoured view. Uh, or as human beings, we come uh, to each subject with our own set of preconceptions or presuppositions, and um, sometimes we, we look at the evidence uh, through those glasses. And the scientific method has limitations anyway. It can only really deal with issues 
that can be observed. So mm. when you're talking about something which is supranature, uh, above nature, then it can't really make any statements because it can only deal with what's, what's observed. I'm glad you made that point because, um, you know, we're not arguing here about um, the um, experiments that are done in the laboratory that are repeatable, observable, testable, uh, recordable. Um, we see, you know, that that's not argued. What we're talking about here is origins, and that's a little bit different because we're talking about things in the past that we say did happen, but we weren't there to observe them, we weren't there to record them, we cannot repeat them. And therefore, when we're talking about uh, the history of origins, uh, that is a little bit out of our reach. Now, of course, um, within, with regard to science, what we tend to do is we look at what's happening now and then we kind of extrapolate backwards and say this is how it must have been. Um, but there are a variety of different interpretations of that uh, evidence of what we see today. How did it get here? We have to come up with an, a story of how did we arrive here? Was it by evolution? Was it by special creation? Let's look at the evidence and see which model the evidence fits best. Well, those um, those uh, events are non-repeatable, aren't they? So we can't go back and just say, okay, well, this is, this is what our experiments have shown. We have to just look at what our theory would predict and then see if it matches with the evidence. Sure. So and I guess in a sense we can't completely nail down one or the other, we have to at some point exercise a choice. Well, I believe, yeah, I think ultimately we do be, we choose what we believe. Uh, I was once a believer in evolution. I'm now choosing to believe in the God of creation. Um, I cannot prove uh, creation occurred. I wasn't there. In fact, nobody was there but God. Uh, even if you go back to the Bible story, the first line in the Bible is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, and the story uh, of, of Genesis is that over the six-day period, God created, then he created human beings on day six. Uh, and, of course, even Adam and Eve were not witnesses to the creation. It was all done before they arrived. Yes. So um, even they had to believe by faith that God was their creator. Well, let's plunge into some of the evidences, mm. um, which I guess are evidences for creation in the sense that they call into question the evolutionary paradigm. Science tells us that the Earth is very old. Is the evidence for this claim watertight? Uh, are there any problems associated with dating techniques? Sure. And I suppose this is probably one of the um, more prominent arguments that used in favour of evolution. You will watch news reports uh, from time to time and they will say they've dug up this fossil that's uh, 300 million years old or uh, they're talking about rock layers that are you know, up to four and a half billion years old in terms of the age of the Earth. Um, and one of the things that perhaps um, people aren't aware of is that uh, there are even uh, some uh, scientists, scientists who challenge the validity of those dates. How, uh, how do we arrive at those dates for, for a start? Um, there are radiometric dating methods. So basically you take a piece of rock to a laboratory and you're really examining what is the rock made up of. Um, and uh, methods such as potassium argon, uranium lead, rubidium strontium, these are types of methods that are used to age date rocks. And uh, uranium, of course, is radioactive. As it decays, lead is produced. And what um, you could do is you, you measure how much lead is in a rock, how much uranium is in a rock, 
and we know the, cur- the current state of decay. In other words, we know the current rate of decay, I should say. Uh, and therefore, we can say, OK, based on the current rate of decay, we can extrapolate backwards to a time when there was no lead present in the rock. Bingo, we have a date for that rock. Now, of course, the problem with some of those methods that some have uh, raised is, well, how much of each substance was present in the rock originally when it originally formed? So people don't necessarily know that, do they? We, we weren't there to measure that, yes. especially millions, nay, billions of years ago. So um, if, if there were different amounts of the, the substances present in the rock that we are assuming were not so, then that's going to change dramatically the date of that rock. Um, Has the decay rate remained constant over millions of years? We can't know that because we've only been measuring it for a short period of time. About 100 years is the amount of time we've been using these kinds of methods. Um, And was any of each substance added to, uh, or sorry, added by an environmental change or a catastrophic event, such as an earthquake, volcanic eruption or flooding? And... um, You see, you could take a piece of rock to a laboratory, test it by one dating method, take the same piece of rock to a different lab, use a different dating method, and you can come up with different dates for that rock, sometimes by hundreds of millions of years. And the question rightly asked by some scientists is, well, which date would you trust? And if you're not sure, why trust either of those dates? Why why believe that that is, as you say, a watertight case for that rock? I know that um, the island of Surtsey, which was pushed up, I think, in the 1960s, mm. uh, has been dated at uh, a very... It's a very old, a very old date, and yet we know from our own observations that the rocks that were uh, created at that time are very young. So if we can't... If we can't rely on the dates for things that we've actually observed, how can we tell when it comes to um, a process that was in the non-repeatable past. And this, of course, has implications because fossils, uh, obviously they're dated by the rock that surrounds them. Okay, so uh, it's that rock that is dated and therefore a fossil is assigned a date by that method. And I think sometimes if there's some conflict, the supposed age of the fossil also is the one that's used to determine which of the dates that you're going to take as well. That's a very important point. Um, Now that uh, the sort of evolutionary model is is kind of the established view, if you will, um, if you come up with dates that are way outside the ballpark as far as what evolution would expect, they're discarded and they're regarded as, well, there must have been a contaminant or some other reason why that date doesn't match. Rather than saying, well, hang on, why can't we say that you know, this this date is legitimate. You're happy to accept other dates that are legitimate if they're in the ballpark of what you expect. And uh, that's a challenge. Um, Frederick Juniman uh, wrote in a, an article, he, um, he was talking about the age of the Earth. He said, the age of our globe is presently thought to be some 4.5 billion years old based on radioactive rates of uranium and thorium. Such confirmation may be short-lived as nature is not to be discovered quite so easily. There has been in recent years the horrible realisation that radio decay rates are not as constant as previously thought, nor are they immune to environmental influences. So there are scientists who recognise there are challenges with the age dates, and uh, I think the general public need to be aware of that because we read the newspaper headlines, we read the stories in the newspaper, on the TV news, and we constantly hear about 
300 million years old, 150 million years old, uh, based on these kinds of methods that aren't watertight in my view. And the age of the Earth is obviously a really important one because the whole thing of um, life arising from non-life is so improbable that you need a long period of time to make it probable, and this is something we can return to later. Absolutely. It's one of the very important keys from an evolutionary point of view. You have to have massive amounts of time because you're trying to explain how very uh, small... um, small examples of life, like single-celled creatures, how they developed over time into the vast multitude of different kinds of life that we have today. Um, and, and that, that was, has and other that would, challenges uh, And that would take time, wouldn't it? So. Well, this is what they're saying. They're, the, the idea of evolution, in, and perhaps we can explain that uh, term as well. You see, um, most people who believe in creation have no problem with microevolution. Microevolution is the small changes that we see within a kind of creature that uh, adapts to its environment over a period of time. We don't have any problem with that. But what, when we're talking about evolution and when we're talking about it in this, the context of this conversation, we're really talking about macroevolution, and that is molecules to man evolution. So that's transformation from a one type of creature to another. Correct. And so uh, what Darwin proposed was that the small changes that we see within a kind of creature, over a long period of time, he... Um, believed that those little changes would add up over hundreds and millions of years to create the big changes from one kind to another. Now, we do observe the small changes, the adaptations um, within a kind, but we don't observe one creature changing into another kind of creature, and that's, I guess, where the argument is. Hmm. So we might see an arm getting bigger or longer or shorter, but we don't see it turning into a fin or, or something like well, that. Well, Darwin, uh, one of the things that Darwin observed was the finches, the birds, the finches, where he would look at the big beaks, the little beaks, the stubby beaks, the longer beaks. Um, and but they're still beaks, aren't but they? But they're still beaks and they're still finches. <laughs> yes. uh, so the point was he saw how those birds within the, their genes had the adaptations necessary to survive in different environments. But the birds didn't become other kinds of creatures. They were still birds and they still had beaks. Yeah. And so um, what we're, I guess what as a creationist I would say, that's the marvellous um, adaptability that's built into every living creature. So basically what we're saying then is that the dating techniques are not watertight. Mm. Well, William Stansfield, PhD, uh, scientist of California Polytechnic State University, he says this, it is obvious that radiometric techniques may not be the absolute dating methods that they are claimed to be. Now, this is a PhD scientist saying that. Um, Age estimates, he goes on, age estimates on a given geological stratum by different radiometric methods are often quite different, sometimes by hundreds of millions of years. There is no absolutely reliable long-term radiological clock. The uncertainties inherent in radiometric dating are disturbing to geologists and evolutionists. So here's a PhD scientist uh, making a statement about the age dating methods and saying they're not reliable. So this is a critical claim. If the Earth is really very, very old, then it opens the possibility for evolution to take place. But if it's quite young by comparison, Mm. then it reduces the chance that evolution could have taken place. And so it forces us to look at alternative uh, explanations. Mm. How about the fossils? Can the fossils be explained on the basis of slow and gradual changes in the environment? 
Well, fossils are fascinating, of course, um, and you know, I don't. Many people may not realise, but ninety-five percent of the entire fossil record by number is made up of marine creatures, um, and so. Uh, you know, sometimes we kind of get the impression that there's lots of dinosaurs and lots of elephants and lots of, uh, you know, uh, mammals that are found. Uh, but they're really quite rare in terms of the, the whole picture of the fossil record. Um, there's, a, there's a quote here I, I want to make from Dr. Da David uh, Raup. He was curator of uh, geology um, at the Natural History uh, Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, he says, Darwin's theory of natural selection has always been closely linked to evidence from fossils. And probably most people assume that fossils provide a very important part of the general argument that is in favour of Darwinian interpretations of the history of life. Unfortunately, this is not strictly true. This is his view, you know, his view as a as someone who works with fossils. And some fossils have been found that would argue against um, the, them being produced over a long period of time. You, you think of uh, an animal, for instance. Uh, most of us have had pets of some kind or other, and uh, we're all very sad when our pets die. But suppose I took my pet dog or my pet cat and laid him out on the back lawn and waited for him to fossilise. Uh, how likely is that to occur? Well, we know that apart from the fact that after a few little while it's going to start to smell... Uh, the body breaks down, birds will come along, the wind and the rain will erode away. Uh, and, and so how do you make a fossil? Fossils are, are not easily made, certainly not by just lying something out on, on the floor. Um, really, rapid burial is the way that fossils uh, are best made. There are some uh, interesting examples of fossils that have been found. There's, uh, I have a, a picture of a a fossilised fish that is actually eating another fish and it's fossilised in that state. In other words, uh, that fossilised, that, that fish didn't have time to finish its meal before it was rapidly um, so fossilised. So you're, you're looking at a catastrophic event to actually cause it. It's kind of like if you imagine a bucket of wet cement, it's kind of burying something very rapidly uh, in that kind of mixture in order to capture it and seal it mm. and to get all the details that you, you have. There's another famous um, fossil of uh, an ichthyosaur, which is uh, an extinct type of sea creature. And uh, the ichthyosaur in this fossil is giving birth to another baby ichthyosaur. And, of course, it's in the process of giving birth that the, the, the baby ichthyosaur isn't yet free from the mother, and yet it's been preserved in the fossil record. Uh, I know many mothers might feel it takes millions of years to give birth <laughs> when they're in labour, but it doesn't take that long. And in order to have preserved this fossil, it must have been buried rapidly. Um, and so uh, even many geologists, uh, sorry, even many paleontologists will now admit that um, flood conditions are the best conditions for producing fossils. Now, of course, in the Bible, we have the... Uh, record of Noah's flood, um, where uh, it talks about a global flood. In fact, you look around the world today and two-thirds of the world is still co covered with water. Um, in fact, somebody has uh, suggested that if you level out the topography of the world, that the, uh, the earth would be covered by about two kilometers of water. Um, and the Bible says that uh, the, the flood covered the earth. Even today, we find on the higher levels of Mount Everest, we find fossilised remains of marine creatures. 
so we, I believe that there, the evidence from the fossil record uh, favours uh, the biblical model and we see evidence of a catastrophic flood at the time of Noah that I believe accounts for many of the fossils that we see today. So those examples of the fossils that were obviously formed very quickly are mm. serious anomalies for the notion that these things just occurred you know, gradually. Well, that's or the, right. Or that, or that the past was very slow and gradual. But yes. we can see that there's evidence of catastrophic events in the, pre- in the past, not only just earth, earthquakes and also volcanoes yeah. and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, rock layers in the earth, you go to some place like Grand Canyon, which is this huge gash in the earth. Um, obviously, um, a uh, evolutionary geologist would say, oh, look at all those millions of layers. That represents millions of years um, of geology. Whereas uh, a creationist would say, well, look at that uh, huge canyon. That was obviously carved when it was still wet, so to speak, still soft. And it was carved in a very rapid um, fashion uh, by a huge amount of water. Uh, And so there are different views about how um, some of these formations, the formations are the same. We have the same evidence, but there are two different views about how that evidence got there. What strikes me about the Great Canyon is the fact that each of the layers seems to sit like a pancake on top of the others. So there doesn't seem to be millions of years between each of these layers. Otherwise, there would have been evidence of erosion, serious erosion. Well, if you, yeah, if you take the Grand Canyon as an example, for instance, um, you've got all of these, like you say, finely granulated, uh, granulated layers that are sitting one upon another. There isn't evidence of erosion, which is quite uh, amazing. And yet, at the same time, according to the geological column that you will find in geology textbooks, there are sections in the Grand Canyon where sections of the geological column are missing. They should be there, but they're completely missing. And one of the explanations for that, they would say, oh, there must have been massive erosion at that period of time. Well, it's eroded very flat, (laughs) and the next layer is laid very flat upon it, uh, so that doesn't seem to be a viable explanation. So these these layers are thousands of feet thick. That's right. Clearly some massive event would have been required to lay those... Correct. Lay those layers down. I think in terms of fossils too, if you go back to the time of Darwin, you know Darwin's uh, book, The Origin of Species, um, is fascinating because he really deals more with natural selection rather than the origin of species. But he talked about um, fossils and he he mentions, um, he says, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? And he's talking about... If you've got one creature turning into another creature over a vast period of times, there should be thousands of intermediary links on the way from, you know, the between the creatures. And he's saying, why don't they exist? And uh, in his article, he writes, geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. Now, what Darwin's saying here is that the reason we don't see all these intermediate links uh, between the big creatures, he he just says, well, the the record, the um, fossil record is imperfect. And certainly there were a lot less samples uh, available to him than are available to us now. Um, Another... um, scientist wrote, and this is from um, David Rorp again, uh, he writes, well, we are now about 120 years after Darwin. This is when he wrote this article. 
and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. The record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky, and ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than, when we, had, uh, than we had in Darwin's time. By this I mean that some of the classic cases of Darwinian change in the fossil record, such as the evolution of the horse in North America, have had to be discarded or modified as a result of more detailed information. So his point there is um, Darwin expected more fossils to be found, um, but at the end of the day, um, the, the, for evolution, the fossil record isn't any better. We're going to go to a break now, and when we come back, I want to ask Peter some more about the fossil record, particularly about the creatures that seem to have shown no evolutionary change over, suppose, millions of years. We'll be back soon. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02. 4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abn Australia all one word dot org dot au Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. You are listening to The Bible Teachers. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and I'm speaking with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, Did We Really Evolve? Peter, we were talking before the break about fossils. I understand that there are some fossils that indicate that there's been little change over supposed millions of years. In fact, the fossils are indistinguishable from animals that we see today. How can that be? Well, this is one of the exciting things, I guess, about the fossil record is, uh, yes, you're right, uh, occasionally fossils will be found of things that we uh, have comparable uh, living creatures today, such as the horseshoe crab, for instance, uh, you find fossils of these and you also uh, can find living ones in the earth today. Um, another example would be the coelacanth, which was a fish that was regarded to be extinct and uh, should have been uh, extinct around the, the time of the extinction of some of the dinosaurs. And yet uh, last century they pulled one of these out of the water near Madagascar. Um, they also pulled another one out of the water in uh, near Sulawesi. And uh, the coelacanth is known as a f- living fossil. In other words, they have uh, these creatures in the fossil record, and yet they're still living today. And if they're meant to be millions of years old, the question would arise, why has not uh, these creatures evolved? Mm. If that is the general expectation of creatures that we evolve into something else, how have these creatures managed to remain the same? And there are some 500 examples, I believe, of the uh, what we commonly call now a living fossils, where you have an example in the fossil record of millions of years ago, according to geological timelines, 
uh, and yet you have the creature still alive today. So that's a, a serious anomaly as well because you have to then try to explain how Correct. a creature could live for, say, 50 million years, supposedly, yeah. and not show any evidence of change. That would mean that either the environment hasn't changed over that time, mm. um, which is highly unlikely, or um, in the case of the animal, if it's competing for food and uh, it has predators and so forth, has nothing changed significantly over that 50 million years? Well, there was, um, they held a, there was a significant uh, conference on evolution in Chicago in 1980. And uh, many of the conversations, or, you know, the debates and so forth were reported in Science magazine uh, at that time. And uh, one evolutionist said, evidence from fossils now points overwhelmingly away from the classical Darwinianism that most Americans learned in high school. And so... Uh, here at a conference that is about evolution, about the the, the uh, theory of evolution and how science is, um, um, I guess, uh, informing that theory, uh, then they're now saying that um, the fossil evidence actually points away from the classical. So, if the evidence that we've been reviewing is pointing us away from the theory. Is there any observational evidence for intelligent design? Sure. And, you know, from time to time in the press, uh, typically we get a lot of um, material about evolution. We'll, you know, you'll hear uh, stories about we've dug up these bones, they're 300 million years old and so forth. And the, the, the sort of theory of evolution is um, continually being... Um, Supported by those kind of news stories, but occasionally in the news you, you'll see other things. His um, this is from Melbourne newspaper Herald Sun back in two thousand, and Paul Gray writes. He says science is reconsidering its belief that life happened by chance, and um, you know this is kind of rare, but it occurs. You see um, sometimes uh, articles about creationism or scientists who believe in creation. Uh, there was a, another article in 99 about Dr Ian McCready who works for the CSIRO. He's an award-winning Australian scientist, but he doesn't believe in evolution. He does believe in biblical creationism. Michael B's book Darwin's Black Box caused quite a stir when it was published in the late 1990s. B is a biochemist. Why was it such a challenge to the ruling paradigm of time and chance? Well, by Behe, in his um, field of science, he was looking at the evidence and he he saw challenges to the neo-Darwinian framework. Um, he says in his book, in the face of the enormous complexity that modern biochemistry has uncovered in the cell, the scientific community is paralysed. And so he's basically looking at um, the cells of living creatures. He's looking at how complex they are because in the past... Uh, maybe, you know, our microscopes were not as powerful as they are today. And uh, what seemed to be a simple cell is actually very complex when we look deep within it. And um, he's saying that the scientific community is paralyzed in terms of how do we explain the complexity within living cells? How did that build up in an evolutionary fashion? He says no one at Harvard University, no one at the National Institutes of Health, no one at the National Academy of Sciences, no Nobel Prize winner, no one at all can give a detailed account of how psyllium or vision or blood clotting or any complex biochemical process might have developed in Darwinian fashion. And then he goes on to say, but we are here. 
plants and animals are here. The complex systems are here. All these things got here somehow, if not in a Darwinian fashion, then how? And Professor Michael Behe um, proposes that many of the living systems that he is studying were designed. And, of course, uh, that is... Uh, sends shockwaves through certain areas of the scientific community, particularly if they're committed to evolution. You see, some of these um, some of these systems only work if everything's working effectively together. So, if some part of the system is removed or is not functioning, then the whole system collapses. So, you would find it very difficult to explain how these things just arose in a higgly-piggly fashion. Correct. And in his book, um, Professor B, he uh, talks about irreducible complexity. In other words, uh, he, and he uses the example of a mousetrap, and he describes the base and the spring and the hammer uh, and all of the different parts, the components that make up a simple mousetrap. And he said, if you remove one of those parts, the mousetrap doesn't work. And Darwinian evolution suggests that gradually over time, little piece by little piece, uh, organisms can develop and grow uh, and evolve. Um, and Behe was questioning that principle uh, because he says um, so many of the organisms that he looks at, uh, the functions within the cell that he looks at, he says these couldn't possibly have arisen by Darwinian fashion because if you remove any single component of that, it renders the organism obsolete. And there'd be no survival advantages if there's no, if there's no advantage functioning exactly. at the time. It seems to me that the improbability of evolution by time and chance is a major challenge to its viability. How improbable is the formation of life by chance? Well, uh, Pierre Lacombe de Nuit, he was a physiologist. Um, he wrote a, a book called Human Destiny, and uh, he was attempting to show um, how difficult uh, it would be by chance to uh, come up with one protein mo- molecule, for instance. And uh, he said the chance of forming one protein molecule was 1 in 10 to the power of 321. Now, that's an enormous number, and to put that in perspective, uh, if, as an evolutionist, you believe that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old um, and you were to um, find out how many seconds are in 4.5 billion years, it would be 2 times 10 to the power of 16. That's how many seconds are in 4.5 billion years. And the point he's making here, um, Danui, he says that uh, the chance of forming one protein molecule is 1 in 10 to the power of 321. In other words, you don't even have enough seconds in the history of planet Earth to have, have one attempt per second um, to, for this one protein molecule to form. He, he says this, events in which need an infinitely longer time than the estimated duration of the Earth in order to have one chance on the average to manifest themselves can, it would seem, be considered impossible in the human sense. And so um, if you look at that, if he's saying in the human sense it just seems impossible that evolutionary uh, life could have, have occurred by chance, then the other option is, well, maybe it was a miracle. <laughs> well, that's right. If it, if it occurred early in the process, it's a miracle, but a, a, an amazing miracle. Yeah, for Requiring sure. a great deal of faith, I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, I referred earlier to um, that conference on... Um, evolution that they held in Chicago in 1980. And uh, one reporter uh, was reporting on on that in Science Magazine. It said the central question of the Chicago conference was whether the mechanisms underlying microevolution 
can be extrapolated to explain the phenomena of macroevolution. And he says, at the risk of doing violence to the positions of some of the, uh, some of the people at the meeting, the answer can be given as a clear no. So here we have a major conference on evolution and the conclusion that this reporter is drawing from the information given by the scientists themselves is that microevolution, the small changes within a kind, do not add up to macroevolution, one, ma one major kind changing into another major kind. And that's quite an omission. It certainly is. Tell me about Michael Denton's book, Evolution, A Theory and Crisis. I remember buying a copy of this back in the 1980s. Well, Michael Denton um, is an evolutionist, but he wrote this book, Evolution, A Theory and Crisis, and he wanted to highlight what he saw as the real challenges to the theory of evolution. And this is the mid-1980s. This is some while back now. Um, he writes in his book, while most evolutionary biologists who have written recently about evolution concede that the problems are serious, nearly all take an ultimately conservative stand. In other words, they're saying, yes, there are some challenges to evolution, but we're sure that we can overcome them. But he says, um, he says something different. He says, in this book, I have adopted the radical approach by presenting a systematic critique of the current Darwinian model ranging from paleontology to molecular biology. I have tried to show why I believe that the problems are too severe and too intractable to offer any hope of resolution. He's not, he's not a creationist, are Not at all. No. This, this guy is not a crea uh, creationist, not a Christian. He's a scientist, but he's taking an honest look at the Darwinian model, and he's saying uh, they're too the problems are too intractable to offer any hope of res resolution in terms of the orthodox Darwinian framework. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think that the more we learn... The, the more difficult it becomes to believe in molecules-to-man evolution. So the difficulties are accumulating. Well, you see, w one of the things we need to understand is um, the fact that science is progressive. Information is progressive. We're learning more all the time. Um, so, you know, if you went to somewhere like the Louvre Museum in Paris, they've got thousands and thousands of science books there in the museum, uh, all of which are obsolete. You know, they were once written, people would read these books, that was the science of the day. But time moves on, we discover more things, and the science books become obsolete. That brings me to um, the fossil record. Mm. Um, Darwin thought that it was a problem in his day mm. for his theory. Have things changed? Well, I think they have changed in as, as much as we have many, many more um, species uh, we've uh, recovered from the fossil record um, but it hasn't changed in terms of providing all of those intermediaries, uh, intermediaries the transitional forms that you would expect to find by the thousands uh, if evolution were true because we're, we're finding fossilised creatures but we're not finding the intermediaries from the one kind to another that But we don't have one example that's watertight, do we? We don't have one example that's watertight. In mm. fact, um, there are there's a scientist who makes that quote, there's not one example of a fossil uh, transitional form that he would call watertight, no. The Bible says we're all descended from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Is there any evidence that this has taken place? Well, this is kind of interesting because um, if you talk about Adam and Eve, most people say, oh, surely you don't believe in Adam and Eve. And yet um, genetics is providing some interesting information in this uh, area. Um, I um, picked up an article from the Washington Post uh, back in 1995, and uh, 
the uh, the title of the article was Genetics, an Evolutionary Mate for Eve. And uh, it said about 10 years ago, molecular biologists found evidence in human genes that all people share a common female ancestor. That would have been in the mid-'80s. Okay, so... Um, Molecular biologists have evidence that we all go back to a single female at some point in the past. What about the male? Well, uh, of course, the female, they had to give her a nickname, so they called her Eve. (laughs) Unsurprisingly. (laughs) Unsurprisingly. And it says, now comes corroboration from a different kind of study, analysis of um, of part of the Y chromosome. Y-sex chromosome indicates that modern humans descended from a common male ancestor. So genetics is telling us today that every human being is uh, related to one common female ancestor in the past and every human being is related to one common male ancestor in the past. Now, that is amazing to me because it's... um, consistent with what we read in the Bible that God made one man and one woman originally. Peter, let's move on to chromosomes. Mm. Do chromosomes show a progression from lower life forms to higher forms like humans in a way that confirms the evolutionary theory? Well, no, it it doesn't. And, you know, know, man uh, has 46 chromosomes. Um, Dogs have 78. Um... And then you have uh, uh, sheep have 54. So the, there's no sort of um, trail, uh, if you like, uh, through the chromosomes that indicates some kind of build-up over time in the evolutionary chain. Another thing that's interesting is if you look at the whole common ancestor uh, situation, um, evolution would teach that... Um, you know, we began in as uh, small, uh, single-celled creatures, and then we developed, and then uh, we were in the oceans, and then there were amphibians and reptiles and mammals and birds. And um, if you think about uh, cows, for instance, um, they would uh, evolutionary model would say that whales and cows are related; that somehow cows. Uh, some many, many generations back decided to go back to the sea and become the, the porpoises and the whales that we have today. A bit hard to imagine though, isn't it? It is hard to imagine and there's no evidence for that. There's no fossil evidence for that. Um, this is just something because we cl- um, classify animals based on their reproduction really. Uh, you know, Because whales produce live young, they produce milk um, and therefore uh, they're regarded as mammals. Uh, and yet, of course, how different they are uh, to cows that live on the land. Can we really picture the cows going back to the ocean over millions of years and becoming the whales of, of today? It's just very hard, but that's the kind of thing you would have to accept if you're believing in that molecules to mankind of evolution. Well, which of the stories of human origins best fits the observational evidence, in your opinion? Well, having grown up um, as someone who didn't believe in God, uh, went to state school, was taught evolution, believed evolution, embraced that. I actually had a Christian friend who I used to give a hard time to for believing in um, the Bible, for believing in creation. And, um, you know, I I was interested in knowing what was real. I, I, I still am. Uh, I, I don't want to follow a cunningly devised fable. Uh, I want to know um, that which is is right. And when I look at the evidence today, 
Uh, I find the evidence points far more towards uh, a creative designer, intelligent uh, designer of life than I do the time and chance over millions of years evolution kind of uh, production mm. of life. To me, it seems sensible. We know as human, intelligent human beings, we are creative. We build things. We make things. We make plans. And then we, uh, you know, everything in this room from the chairs, the microphones, the desk, the computer, the headphones, they were all designed in somebody's mind. Uh, we made the plans and then we created those things. So we know how creation works because we are creative. We make things. We build things. Uh, and then we look at the marvellous things in nature that are way beyond anything we could make, but we say that that was time and chance. I'll give you an example. Um, in um, South Dakota in America, uh, there's a place called Mount Rushmore where the, the faces of four presidents are carved into the mountain. Um, and it took uh, many, many men over many, many years to create those faces on the rock, and if we look at those faces, we would say we would conclude that somebody had carved them. We wouldn't say, "Oh, look, the wind and the rain has formed those faces," because they're too intricate, they're too detailed for us to say it was by time and chance. Now, if we can recognise in the rock somebody's creative activity, uh, why is it so difficult? We see, we can see that in a human face because those faces in the rock. They don't breathe, they don't talk, they don't eat, they don't hear, they can't so see. So they're not as complex they're as dead. living things, yeah. They're dead. Living things are so much more complex and they would require an enormous amount of intelligence to create them. I mean, we cannot duplicate uh, many of the systems we see in nature, not to that degree. Uh, we try to copy them uh, in various ways, uh, we, we've taken lessons from nature in order to uh, help us develop many, many things, but uh, we're not able to produce uh, the brilliance that we see in nature. And uh, I have to draw the conclusion, and many others, including scientists, have drawn the conclusion that there must be an intelligent designer who designed many of the natural systems that we see. Mm. I want to move on to what the Bible actually says about people, um, but before we do that, I just want to ask you one last question. Is there any compelling evidence that apes and humans had a common ancestor? This is one that we hear frequently, that there was a common ancestor. Is there any evidence in chromosomes or DNA that um, these creatures um, and man had had a common ancestor? Well, um, you may or may not remember in, uh, I think it was 1912, where Piltdown Man was uh, supposedly um, discovered. Mm -hmm. um, and Piltdown Man was um, discovered by a, a man called Charles Dawson in um, England. And uh, what it turned out to be, it actually turned out to be a hoax. And they had a human skull and an orangutan jaw uh, that had been um, manipulated in order to... to uh, make them uh, fit. And this was regarded at the time as major evidence for the theory of evolution, uh, which was still, you know, in in uh, its infancy, I guess. Uh, Darwin had written in 1859. This was 1912. And from 1912 to 1953, Piltdown Man was regarded as hailed as a significant breakthrough in a discovery to show, to demonstrate that uh, evolution 
that evolution was actually true. In 1953, of course, it was demonstrated to be a hoax, to be a fraud. Um, there are a number of other um, discoveries that have been made, uh, major claims have been made, um, but when they're investigated by um, scientists in that particular field, so it's peer-reviewed, uh, then there are usually questions asked. I mean, often the, the case is you'll see a headline, Missing Link Found. And you'll see that headline from time to time as the decades roll, roll around. Well, if Missing Link has been found, then what about the previous Missing Link that was supposedly found? Uh, over time, uh, many of these uh, claims in regard to uh, fossilised skulls or... Um, remains of uh, uh, apes or men that have been found, uh, they're, they're usually discarded as, as actually being ape fossils. Um, so, so what you're saying is there's no conclusive evidence that we had a common ancestor? Not at all, no. With apes and, apes and humans. Well, is what the Bible said anciently viable in terms of what we know about the complexity in living systems today? Well, I think, you know, as we were quoting Professor Behe before, um, the complexity within even the single cell that we couldn't have imagined was there centuries ago because we just didn't have the technology to be able to peer that deeply I think deeply that's why B it. called it Darwin's black box. Correct. In Darwin's time, all he knew was that the cell was sort of like a piece of protoplasm. Yes. He didn't see all the intricacy of the cell like we see sure. it today. And so when we see that and we also see the way in which uh, animals and their environments are so well um, matched to each other and that they're able to adapt. Um, and the systems in various different kinds of animals and plants and so forth, when we look at flight, for example, um, we, just, we know uh, that it requires intelligent design to produce flight. Um, we have only been flying ourselves as humans for about 100 years when we were able to create flying machines uh, to take us into the air, and yet um, we've examined flight uh, amongst birds, obviously. We see it in mammals, the bats fly. Uh, there were the pterosaurs that are now extinct, which have been in uh, rept reptiles. Um, there are, of course, the insects uh, as well as the birds. There's so many insects that fly. Human Humans can't fly. And uh, we sometimes wonder why, if we're the top of the evolutionary tree, how come mosquitoes can fly and we can't? Um, but we know when we look at flight how incredible, what incredible design is required for insects, birds and other creatures to fly um, and to suggest, uh, even to imagine how something of that nature came about by chance is, is mind-boggling and, and it makes to me... Uh, the idea of evolution seem less and less and less likely. Does the Bible actually acknowledge this complexity in design? Well, the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, and, you know, obviously throughout the Bible, from the very first verse all the way to the very last book of Revelation and everywhere in between, it constantly refers to God as the creator. And we weren't able to actually confirm that we were fearfully and wonderfully made until just recently. Right. In historical terms. Sure. Well, so. we're able to examine the systems of the body and to marvel, really, at the design, uh, even within, you know, the human body. And uh, yet 
the psalmist knew that 3,000 years ago. Sure. So where did he get that information from? Sure. And also uh, the Bible itself, it talks about the earth and uh, it says that God formed the earth for a purpose. He formed it to be inhabited. In other words, this feeds into the, you know, people want to ask the question, why are we alive? Why do we exist? Uh, these are the deep questions people want to know. The Bible answers those questions. And um, the Bible tells us that we didn't come from pond scum, we didn't, weren't an accident, we didn't just arise by chance and we're just heading for oblivion. The Bible actually tells us that we have an identity, we were made in the image of God, and we have a destiny with him also. Peter, if this is true, this leads naturally into our next program, which is dealing with why so much suffering. Would you like to introduce the program briefly? Sure. Why so much suffering? This perhaps is the most challenging uh, question for the Christian faith, simply because as Christians, um, we believe in the Bible. The Bible declares that God is, is love, and the Bible declares that he is almighty. In other words, he's all-powerful and he's all-loving. And people naturally ask the question, if God is all-loving and he's all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about suffering in the world? And it's a really significant question that we need to address. It's probably the most important question that Christians have to address. Why so much suffering in the world? Peter, it's been really uh, enjoyable talking with you today. I'm just running with you like to close our conversation with prayer. Certainly. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful to you once again for the opportunity to think, to reflect, and to uh, look around the, the wonderful world that you have made. We also recognize that uh, it shows evidence um, of uh, deterioration, evidence of... Um, there's something wrong with the world, and we want to investigate that in our next presentation. But we thank you, Lord, for the testimony that we read in the Bible. I just pray that you'll help um, others to continue thinking, to continue learning, to continue investigating, uh, and then uh, understanding, coming to the conclusion that there is a God in the universe, that there is a God who cares about us, who created us in the first place and has a plan for our future. We thank you for these promises in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Peter. Remember to join us next time. Bye for now, and God bless you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.